0: You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, April 25th, 2021, at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. All right, good morning. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the book of 2 Timothy as we continue our journey there this morning. In just a moment, we're going to read from God's Word and begin to teach from God's Word. Um, before that, though, uh, since we've been gathering here on Sunday mornings throughout this um, strange time that we're in, uh, one of the things um, we have wrestled with was uh, how to make the space most comfortable for those that are here, especially those that have their families with them. Uh, and so, I want you to know this morning, uh, starting this morning and each Sunday here forward, uh, especially for those of you with, with babies, uh, with infants that are with you, uh, we have opened up the parlor downstairs. If you go right down the back stairs back there, right really below where we are, uh, there's a parlor down there with sofas, chairs, a TV just like that one up there. Uh, the sermon will be on. Speakers will have everything. So if at any point it would be more comfortable for you to head down there during the sermon, it's ready for you. Uh, you don't have to wander the hallways and figure out what to do. So you can go right downstairs. Right to the parlor. Um, That will be there each and every week. So that's a good progress, I think. Um, If you got your Bibles, open them up to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to continue there this morning. Let me read our text for us. We'll pray and we'll jump in. 2 Timothy chapter 2, we'll start in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes this You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Let's pray as we jump in this morning. Father, we thank you for the privilege it is again to be here, gathered by your Spirit according to your grace, that we might hear your voice and your word. And Lord, we ask that you would bring our hearts to a place of surrender, soften them, Lord, uh, open up our ears that we might hear you this morning in your word. And We ask that you would do that very thing that only you can do by your spirit together with your word. You would continue to conform us into the image and likeness of your son. We ask these things in his name for his glory and our joy. Amen. Um, It was around 13 years ago, um, not quite this exact weekend, but pretty close, uh, that we as a church gathered on a Sunday morning for the very first time. We had been meeting on Sunday nights in a a little chapel, uh, Grace Covenant Church. And it was 13 years ago when we finally had the opportunity to gather together on a Sunday morning. And that Sunday morning, I remember talking very specifically about dreaming together that God, by His grace, would cultivate a gospel-centered and grace-driven and mission-minded culture in our church. And over the last 13 years, a lot of things have changed. Faces have changed. Some locations have changed. You know, the 80 men and women and children that were there with us that first Sunday 13 years ago, right before COVID hit, became almost 800. But then again, everything changed. And as I've thought about it, for for all that has been taken away, so to speak, this last year, um, in its wake, we've been given an opportunity to actually do some honest self-reflection as a people, an honest self-reflection even as an organization, as a church, an opportunity if we're willing to retool different aspects of how we function and how we think. And, in fact, if I'm being just completely candid, even around the office with staff and with elders, I've been using the language of of looking towards the upcoming fall season as an opportunity to really replant this church so much has changed and so much has been challenged in the last year. But even as things change, even as variables shift and the unknown tries to impose its will on how we function and how we operate, as much as things change, the Bible has continued to return me back to that initial prayer where we pleaded with God to cultivate a gospel-centered and grace-driven and mission-minded people, a church of maturing and multiplying disciples. Not just now, not just for our years on this earth, but with an eye towards multiple generations. That was the main thing. And I've been reminded painfully at times this last year that change is always inevitable. And none of us really like it sometimes. We all have our own internal desire to resist change at times. And while everything around us may seem like it's changing, the the main thing doesn't change. Gospel-centered, grace-driven, and mission-minded, maturing and multiplying disciples for generations. It doesn't change. It doesn't change because it's God's plan. We didn't make it up. This is God's plan, and it it doesn't change. And even in the midst of all the chaos and change of the the year, being reminded of that is one of the most stabilizing things that we can be reminded of. As a people, we're, we're simply asking God to do in us what he's committed to do for his glory and our joy. There is no safer, stabilizing reality than that. And yet, at the same time, continuing to give ourselves to that, we begin to realize that there's also no more stretching way to live than that. And This is the reminder that Paul gives Timothy in the letter that he has written him from prison that we're looking at this morning. I want you to listen this morning as we go through these verses. In the, in the first couple of verses, I, I want you to listen for Paul calling Timothy and then calling the church back to a gospel-centered, grace-driven, mission-minded way of living. Calling him back to that single, most important, stabilizing main thing. And and then in verses 3 through 7, I want you to hear about how it can be stretched. How you and I, in the midst of that, can be stretched. At times, feeling like stretched beyond our limits because as Paul kindly reminds Timothy and kindly reminds us, it's not going to be easy. No one ever said it would be easy. And so as we look down at God's word this morning, we are reminded that Paul has already called Timothy and the church back to a way of life that is unashamed of Jesus, that is following the pattern of sound, nourishing words that he has given. It's adamant about guarding the good deposit, guarding the gospel from distortion and from downstream destruction in people's hearts and lives. And now as the letter turns, and in our Bibles a chapter comes in, but remember that wasn't in the letter, now as Paul turns, he is reminding Timothy and the church to preserve those healthy words and guard that good deposit by passing it on to others look at what he says in verse 2. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men. Some of your translations will say, entrust to reliable people. And I like that because the actual Greek under there is anthropos, the word for humanity, men and women, all of us. Entrust to faithful, reliable people who will be able to teach others also. Remember Timothy, These sound words, these nourishing words, this good deposit of God's glory, God's faithfulness, God's grace, most clearly seen to us in His Son, it's not meant to end, terminate in your life. It's not a cul-de-sac, so to speak. It's not simply just for you. You don't preserve and guard the good deposit simply by a defensive position of discerning everything. No, you preserve it and you guard it by passing it on to other people. That is one of the most essential ways of continuing to preserve the pattern of healthy, nourishing words of the gospel, the good deposit that God has given it. You preserve it by passing it on to others. When Paul is just reiterating the great commission that Jesus gave his disciples before he ascended into the heavens, Matthew chapter 28. Jesus came and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Friends, this has been the mission of the church ever since Jesus commissioned them. But here's the reality. In every generation of the church since, we seem to get distracted as to what will best build or advance his church. You know, even in our own country, in our own history, in our own culture, there was a time when the church was generally respected. By our culture and looked to for a source of wisdom and even stability. And the church squandered that influence generations ago through sin, and through dilution of the gospel and its downstream effects in the hearts and lives of men and women in the church. It, and ever since we began to squander that influence, it's, it's as though each subsequent generation of the church is trying to figure out how to get back into the place where we're liked by the world around us? How can can they hit the like button on the church? What would make them see us that way? The church in every subsequent generation seems to face this tension point where we come face to face with the reality that the world won't like us, and we get afraid of that. And so each generation tries to figure out what the culture of the church would be like, where people can just come and see that we're not that different than everyone else, and that you can just like us, because we're so afraid of being unliked. One writer I was reading this week said, he said, the focus has shifted in each generation from making disciples to becoming America's sweethearts. and Every generation has to face it. Some of you might be familiar with a man named Dallas Willard. He's a philosophy professor at the University of Southern California. Dallas Willard wrote this, and I've never been able to shake it. He said an entirely different model of being God's people was instituted in the Great Commission that Jesus gave his church. The very first goal he set for the early church was to use his all-encompassing power and authority to make disciples without regard to ethnic distinctions from all nations, Having made disciples, these alone were to be baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. With this twofold preparation, they were to be taught to treasure and keep all things, whatever I have commanded you. Willard wrote, the Christian church of the first century resulted from following this plan for church growth a result hard to improve upon. Because we're sitting here, some 2,000 plus years later, It's hard to improve upon the very mission that God gave his people then. But yet in every subsequent generation, we wrestle with some level of fear and try to figure out how to do it better and differently. It's crazy. Willard went on to write, you and I, we cannot literally be with Jesus the way that his first disciples could, but the priorities and intentions The heart or the inner attitudes of his disciples are forever the same. In the heart of a disciple, there is a desire, and there is a decision, a settled intent. The disciple of Christ desires above all else to be like Jesus. Disciples are those who seriously intend to become like Jesus from the inside out, and they orderly or systematically and progressively rearrange their affairs in life to that end under the guidance of God's Word and His Spirit. That is how a disciple lives. That's how a church composed of those who are disciples of Christ are to live. That's what God has always intended for us to pass on. Listen, friends, for, for the church to flourish, as Jesus defines flourishing for generations, we have to stick to the mission making disciples of Jesus. And we've been given an opportunity in this last year, and we've been given an opportunity thinking about how we come out of this last year to ask ourselves as a people, and for you to ask yourselves as a follower of Jesus, is his mission shaping me? Is his mission shaping us? It's not efficient at all. It's very hard work. We can become very easily distracted. It's very tempting to try to distort it for our own advantage. We're going to need strength to live this way. Because to live this way, we're going to be stretched beyond the levels of comfort that we're accustomed to. It's going to take strength to live day in and day out unashamed of Jesus following the pattern of sound words, allowing his words to shape how we see ourselves, the lives we live, the decisions we make. It's going to take strength to live, as Dallas Willard said, progressively rearranging our affairs under the guidance of the word and the spirit to be more like Jesus from the inside out, to guard the gospel and to pass it on when there's every human reason around us to trim it a little bit, to dilute it a little bit, or to even deny it altogether. Cultivating, maturing, and multiplying disciples of Jesus, living a life that is mission-minded, it's not easy. This is why I love the encouragement that Paul gives Timothy and gives the church here in this letter. It's not going to be easy. He's very real. He's very honest. It's why he says, do not ever stop enjoying God's grace. Look at verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Take some time this week, just sit with that verse. That is a massive, towering statement of gospel-centered and literal grace-driven, grace-powered living. Be strengthened by did you catch that? There is something acting upon you. Grammatically, this is a, what they call a passive command. There is something happening to you. Be strengthened by. There is a source for the strength that's required. And it's not you. It's not your tenacity. It's not your grit. It's not your determination. Paul doesn't even say, Timothy, be strong. He certainly doesn't say, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. No, he says, be strengthened by. I mean, you realize each of us has a a measure of grit in our wiring. We each have a a different measure of, I'm going to wake up today and I'm going to make it happen. We each have a different measure of that. And if that is the source of the strength that you and I are leaning on to live the life that God has called us to in the world in which he has placed us, one of two things is going to happen. You're either going to be utterly crushed because you're not going to be able to do it. You don't have that level of grit and tenacity within you to withstand all of the opposition and struggle. Or you're going to do pretty well, and you're going to get so self-righteous that it's disgusting to everybody else around you. No, Paul says, listen, listen, be strengthened by an unlimited reservoir that supplies everything you need. What is it? It's grace. Where is it found? In Jesus. Paul is reminding us as well as Timothy that our strength flows from the reservoir of God's free grace to us. The fullness of the reality that in Christ Jesus, all of our sins, all of your sins, make it personal to yourself, all of your sins, past, present, and future, have been paid for. There is therefore now no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. Not only is his grace what is often called his unmerited favor, you actually deserve his condemnation. But there is therefore now none for you because of his work on your behalf through his son. Do you know what happens when you begin to get that? When when, when the information that gets deposited into your head begins to drop down into your heart? One of the things that begins to happen Is that when you sin, you feel free to run to your father and not away from him. You realize you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to hide. There's no shame for you to sit in. There is no condemnation for you in front of him because of his son. It is utter, undeserving favor to those who deserve wrath. Not only that, His grace not only changes your position and relationship with the Father, Paul is very clear throughout all of his other letters, it's God's grace that also strengthens you. While we were dead in sin and trespasses, it's His grace, he reminded the same church in the letter to Ephesians, that prepares us for the good works that He's prepared for us. In a similar letter, he writes to Titus, one of his other proteges that's leading the church in Crete. He reminds Titus to remind the church that it's the grace of God that trains us, teaches us how to live, how to follow those sound, healthy words. It's the grace of God. It doesn't just save us and doesn't just strengthen us and doesn't just empower us. It's an aspect of the grace and the kindness of God that He gives us His very Spirit that takes up residence in our hearts. As one writer said, the Spirit of God has been given to us in order that we might know way down deep the endless grace of the heart of God. The Spirit of God loves nothing more than to awaken and calm and soothe us with the heart knowledge of what we have already been graced with. This writer goes on to say, it's as though God in His kindness and grace towards us in giving Him, giving us His very Spirit, His very Spirit works in us for us to not just know with our minds. But experience and live in the reality of the love of God for us. He takes the the recipe, the information, the details, and he turns them into taste. He makes it real. How is Timothy to keep on being strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus? He's to do it by constantly calling to mind that he already has this grace. That Christ's grace to him, Paul says, is grace upon grace. By humbly realizing there will always be more grace. You see, friends, our strength comes from our union with Jesus. And that strength is amplified by our daily communion with Jesus, by his spirit. That's how it works. Kent Hughes would say it this way, nothing would come Timothy's way as he guarded the gospel that he would not have the graced strength to handle. No person, no pain, no problem, no responsibility, no tragedy. There would be no time when he could not stand tall. And that is true for all who are in Christ Jesus and thus under the same grace. If he calls you to do something, he will supply sufficient strength through his grace. If he calls you to step forward, he will give you the power. If he calls you to step up, he will give you the fortitude. If he calls you to endure, the strength you need will be found in the grace that is in Christ Jesus the sure and steady anchor we sang about just minutes ago. How clearly are you seeing and treasuring Jesus? My prayer is that the good news about him that has been deposited in would take root or or very literally for many of us, fall from our heads into our hearts that it might begin to flow out of our hands that's what gospel centered and grace driven and mission minded living is and this call has never changed it's still the most stabilizing reality that you and I are called to but again it doesn't mean we won't be stretched but because God is always strengthening us by grace. You and I are able to endure the stretching. And this is what Paul is going to drive home through a series of analogies that he starts in verse 3. Let's listen to what he says. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. That's verse 3. In verse 4 he says, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So the first thing Paul reminds us is as we are strengthened by grace and as we are continuing to live in the reservoir of grace, being strengthened by all that God is and continues to be for us in His Son, one of the things that happens to us that we have to be aware of is our expectations have to get adjusted. Paul is always coming back to this. No soldier goes into service expecting ease and comfort hardship and difficulty, being stretched, stretched to the end of yourself, that's, that's just par for the course for a soldier. In fact, Tertullian, one of the ancient church fathers, he, he wrote an address called the Address to Martyrs. And in that address, he said this, no soldier comes to the war surrounded by luxuries, nor goes into action from a comfortable bedroom, but from the makeshift and narrow tent where every kind of hardness and severity and unpleasantness is to be found. Don't expect following Jesus to be easy. Gospel-centered, grace-driven, and mission-minded living does not equate ease. The only easy day, the seals are famous of saying, was yesterday. Yesterday. That's true for those who are following Jesus. We have to constantly be adjusting our expectations, Paul said, and then as he goes on with the same metaphor of the soldier, we need to be careful that we avoid the dangerous entanglements all around us. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, he reminds them. I enjoy reading military history, really more military memoirs, not so much the history. And one thing is consistent in all the ones that I read. When when a soldier is given an objective, the objective doesn't change. Some of you have served in our armed forces and have seen combat deployments, and, and you've understood what I'm saying. You've told me about this. When a team, when a unit gets an objective... They spend time working on the strategies to achieve the objective, and when they go out on the mission to accomplish the objective, they don't actually know what's going to happen to them. All the strategies and all the plans can get literally blown out of the sky five minutes in, but guess what doesn't change? The objective. Everything else that comes around them is just another obstacle they have to figure out how to overcome in order to achieve the objective. There's a single-mindedness that characterizes a soldier, a single-mindedness that's required for mission success. So carry Paul's metaphor a little bit further. Our commanding officer has given us the objective of increasing our joy in him and helping others to have that same increasing joy in him. Daily, he's given us the objective to see and enjoy Jesus. That daily, we would continue to be strengthened by his grace. That we would be about his mission of helping others see and enjoy Jesus. One writer said, single-minded devotion to a thing, a sport, a philosophy, a cause, you can even add the military, and a military objective. A single-mindedness to a thing can turn you into a machine. But when it's given to Christ, whose commands are constant with perfect love and wisdom, our highest good, then we become what we ought to be and can stand tall even in suffering. Entanglements are going to threaten. Entanglements threaten the main objective of our joy in Jesus I love what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the author, and perfecter of our faith. Listen, friends, the the greatest threat to your joy in Jesus is probably something that you have welcomed in and you have allowed to have a particular place in your heart, a position in your heart that is threatening Jesus' rightful place. These entanglements, these things that so easily ensnare us, they're, they're more often than not very good things that God has given us as gifts to enjoy that they may remind us of his kindness and his faithfulness and his provision to us, but we take those good things and in our heart we make them main things. We give them a position in our heart they were never meant to have and they become entanglements to our joy in Jesus. Paul's not saying you can't have a job, you can't have a family, you can't have a hobby, you can't have friends. But he's saying that when we take these good things and we make them main things in our hearts, they become entanglements to our real joy. When our sense of self, when our sense of security, when all these things rise and fall with how our family functions, how our stocks function, how our teams play, something has begun to entangle our joy that's meant to be ours in Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in these things since or because his aim, the purpose behind his action, his goal is to please the one who enlisted him. Paul saying what we want is the pleasure of the one who's enlisted us I mean, think about it like a human. You know what it is when someone enjoys you. When you know that someone really enjoys you, you want to be around them, right? You want to spend more time with them, right? When you know they really enjoy you. And when you know they really enjoy you and you want to be around them more, you, you instinctively trust them more. The opposite is true. When you know someone doesn't really enjoy you, you don't really go out of your way to be around them. When you don't really go out of your way to be around them, you don't really know them anymore, and you don't think they really like you, and therefore your trust in them is minimal at best. Friends, gospel-centered and grace-driven living is an ever-present reminder that God's pleasure in you is not built on your performance for Him, but on the cross. And so when we get entangled, we don't have to run from Him fearing His displeasure, We can run to him because it's his kindness that's leading us to repentance. The grace that strengthens us in Christ Jesus is the grace that frees us to run to God when we find ourselves entangled. It's also the same grace that helps us to avoid the entanglements altogether by magnifying the worth of Jesus in our hearts. I mean, listen, regardless of what each of us would say with our mouths, let me ask you this, and you can be honest. You don't have to raise your hand. You just be honest with yourself. How many of us in here walk around the, the battlefield every day without the confidence and strength found in knowing that God is pleased with you? Be honest with yourself. John Owen, he... He wrote that the union with Christ is the greatest and most honorable and glorious of all graces that we are made to be partakers of. He went on to write that this is the missing link that connects the grace of Christ with our experience of God's love. Understanding our union with Jesus, he said, is the thread that holds it all together. This is the work of God's Spirit in us even now to help us feel this As Thomas Goodwin would say, the Spirit makes the heart of Christ real to us. Not just heard, but seen. Not just seen, but felt. Not just felt, but enjoyed. It's the Spirit that takes what we read in the Bible and believe on paper about who Jesus is and what His heart is towards us and moves it out of theory into reality. From doctrine to enjoyment. From knowing He loves you to actually living in that love. My wife has been reading pieces of a book to me this week called Gentle and Lowly about the heart of Jesus. And in that book, the author says that the Spirit's role is to turn our postcard apprehensions of Christ's heart and longing affection for us into an experience of sitting on the beach in a lawn chair, drink in hand, enjoying the actual experience. The Spirit does this decisively once and for all when He saves you, but He does it 10,000 times thereafter as we continue through sin, folly, or boredom, to drift from the felt experience of his heart. Drift as the entanglements capture. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. There is going to be a stretching. There are going to be entanglements that threaten But Paul reminds us to be single-minded like a soldier in our pursuit of our deepest joy in Jesus. And it's the grace that God continues to strengthen us by, that he has given us in his Son and by his Spirit that helps make that a reality. He's doing for us what we need for joy. Bless you. But Paul goes on, two more metaphors. In verse 5, he's reminding us that We don't get to rewrite the rules to the game though. There's going to be a temptation in all of our hearts to do things our own way. But an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Everyone is going to be tempted to run their own race their own way. I mean, just imagine the the high hurdles. Everybody's lined up there on the track. Everyone gets in their starting positions. There is a moment Maybe not for an Olympian, but maybe if you're like me. There's a moment where you're in your position and you realize, I could just run on the outside of the hurdle and beat everyone to the end line. The goal is to get from the start to the finish first. I can actually do it if I don't jump the hurdles. But that's not how the race works. Multiple times in his letters, Paul talks about the discipline of an athlete, but here he's actually talking about the athlete's submission to the structure. Paul's not saying that all of a sudden now we're under the law for salvation. He's not saying that at all. No, Christ ran that race perfectly on our behalf. No, no, no. He's saying God has written his law on our hearts. And gospel-centered, grace-driven living is a surrender to God's direction, not in order to earn salvation, but the surrender gives further evidence of its reality. I mean, the temptation is going to be that you and I think we can do this our own way. That certain direction that God gives his people doesn't apply to us. I laugh at this all the time in my own house. We each have our own version of the rules that don't apply to us. I laugh about it with a measure of seriousness and humor now teaching our son to drive. No, that rule actually applies to you. You have to actually follow that speed limit. They really do. No, that's actually a rule. It does apply to you behind the wheel. Yep. But all of us have this inherent thing that thinks the rules don't apply to us in certain times and places. That somehow we're exempt from it. Somehow he's talking to somebody else. Love your wife the way that Christ loves the church. Well, I'm not sure anybody ever spoke to Jesus the way that she just spoke to me. That's not true. Don't lay up treasures for yourself where moths and rust corrupt and thieves steal. Eh, that would be good for this person. The temptation to change the rules to get to the finish line first, at work, at home, it's going to be strong. But as we submit ourselves and our lives to God's word, as we continue to seek godly counsel from people who won't tell us what we want to hear, but will always tell us what we need to hear for our joy, you and I can run the race in such a way. That we can win the reward. No one who decides to make their own rules will hear that crowning commendation well done. Paul's reminding Timothy and the church to run in such a way to get that prize. No one ever said it would be easy. Denying yourself, taking up your cross, putting to death your sinful desires and passions, resisting the urge at every turn to change the rules of the game. The reality of it is obedience may take us in a direction we don't really want to go. But if we are strengthening ourselves in God's grace, deepening our delight in Jesus' worth, what could be worth more than him? We're going to be stretched by the threat of distractions and entanglements. We're going to be threatened by the temptation to Deceive and to alter the rules of the game. And then Paul says, Remember, it's this grace that strengthens. It's this same grace that keeps us satisfied with ordinary faithfulness with a long term view. That's what he says in verse 6. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. You know, there are a number of famous soldiers. You could probably say their names. You've read their books. There's a lot of famous athletes, but there's not many famous farmers. That's part of the point. One old writer wrote that the strenuous and prosaic toil of the farmer, unlike the soldier and the athlete, is totally devoid of excitement, remote from all glamour, of peril and applause. Every single day. That farmer had to wake up before everyone else, make sure all the animals were fed, make sure that all the animals were safe, and then he's got to plow the ground. He's got to sow the seed. He's got to weed the area. Every single day, he's got to get up and do all of this work. And in the end, he has absolutely zero control over whether or not it's going to rain. No control over whether the sun is going to come out from behind all those clouds, No control over that late season freeze that threatens all the crops that have started to grow. Every single day he works hard in the ordinary habits of farming and in patience he waits on God to do what only God can do. And none of his work has immediate visual result. The farmer isn't sitting on his couch or in a lazy boy in his farmhouse, turning on Netflix and praying, God, please remove the weeds. God, if you don't remove all these weeds, all the plants are going to get choked out. Oh, God, go remove the weeds, and while you're at it, please make it rain. If you make it rain and you get all the weeds out, there's going to be a bigger harvest. That means your return is going to be bigger. That 10% gets larger. God, make it rain. And then, click, new episode of Meat Eater. That's not what Paul's saying at all. But how many of us are like the farmer and the lazy boy, just begging God to remove the weeds, while we abandon the habits of ordinary faithfulness, cultivating our soul to enjoy and reflect Christ? Let me just ask you this, if you're not content with your affection for Jesus, if talking about joy in Jesus and warm, deep affection for Jesus feels foreign to you or you're at least discontent in some way with that joy in your heart, if there's this besetting sin that's just been there for years and decades and just lingers around all the time, have you have you asked yourself what you're really doing about that? I mean the farmer gets out in the field every single day. The same ordinary habits of faithfulness required for his job while he's pleading for God to do what only God can do. I come from a generation of the church that I've increasingly begun to believe has raised spiritual sluggards, myself included, if I'm really honest. We come from a generation in the church that, that made this vitality, this joy, this life in Jesus driven around an event or a moment. And so if you grew up in the church, you had this schedule around you even from the time you were a kid. Event to event, conference here, event here, camp here, retreat here, you go and the vitality in Jesus is alive and well and you got to wait till the next one when it's alive and well again. Again. And in between, you don't really know what to do. You never really learned how to work the field. The ordinary habits of faithfulness and of cultivating the soul to find joy in Jesus aren't there. And so, even now, if it's not that, we're waiting for the next podcast or the next book to drop or the next thing. And so, we're 40 something farmers who don't know what it is to cultivate our hearts. We don't know what it is to deepen our delight in Jesus. We don't know what it is to just put ourselves in the way of his strengthening grace on a daily basis. The grace that he's promised will help us to avoid the entanglements that rob joy. The grace that he's promised will strengthen us from taking the easy path. The grace that he's promised us will strengthen us from trying to change the rules. The grace that he's promised us will ultimately reap the harvest of righteousness. And this is what we're passing on. So, is it any wonder a younger generation looks at us and goes, I don't want any of that? That seems foolish. What's the point? It's the ordinary faithfulness, seeking to see and enjoy Jesus in his word through prayer. As my wife always reminds me, it's the keeping company with Jesus. Seeking to know him that puts you in the place for his strengthening grace to work. That's the farmer. That's the farmer that bears fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Fruit. Not fruits, plural. They're fruit. They all grow together. Remember, disciples progressively rearrange their affairs under the guidance of the Word and the Spirit to be more like Jesus from the inside out. He kept writing, though. He said, the flip side are those who feel they have something more important to undertake than becoming like Jesus. That's why Solomon will say all over the book of Proverbs that a sluggard never makes a good farmer. He always loses his harvest. He's either asleep when he ought to be reaping or because he was too lazy to plow in the previous season or because he allowed his fields to become overgrown with thorns and weeds. No that was the ordinary faithfulness of the farmer that reaps the fruit. Friends, your deepening joy in Jesus is at stake. I believe that's why Paul says what he says in verse 7, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. The strength to live single minded, strength to avoid the entanglement, strength to stay the course and reap the rewards, the pleasure, the living in the pleasure of knowing the one who has called you loves you, hearing the crowning assurance of well done, reaping the harvest of righteousness. It's yours in unending measure in Jesus. It's yours. He is the fullness of all the Godhead. He's yours. You've been made a branch in his vine, baptized in his name. Every substitute to him is cheap. It's like rotted wood with a lot of varnish on it. It's shiny and looks pretty on the outside, but on the inside, it's nothing. Everything compared to him is like that. This is why Paul says, be strengthened by the grace that's in him. Help one another keep the gospel central. The grace of God, the driving engine. The mission of enjoying him and seeing others come to enjoy him in front of your eyes. And like the farmer, get after it. Let me pray for us this morning, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to allow Charles Spurgeon to pray for us this morning. Spurgeon prayed prayed this way for his church. Up, I pray you, brothers and sisters, get up. By him whose eyes are like a flame of fire, and yet were wet with tears. By him on whose head are many crowns, and yet who wore the crown of thorns. By him who is King of kings and Lord of lords, and yet bowed his head to death for you. Get up. Resolve that to life's last breath you will spend and be spent for his praise. The Lord grant that there may be many such in this place. Many such who will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, make that true of us this morning. We ask it in Jesus' good name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.